This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, viral chalk artist David Zinn tells us why it's okay to create something that's just going to get washed away in the rain. David also explains how he finds beauty in the simplest things in life and sharing it with the world through chalk art. He literally finds cracks in a sidewalk and draws based on the crack. It's cool stuff. What's the worst car you've ever driven? Your calls and texts here on the shift. Plus, are you okay with dog sitting, lawnmower stealing, and maybe some barbecue stealing as well in there too? This is the shift podcast. Are you okay with dog sitting? Um, I've never done it. Uh, and uh, I don't think I'd feel comfortable doing it. I'm just kind of the guy that sits and pets the dog. I feel very uncomfortable with taking care of them for some reason. Mm-hmm. Ditto. Ditto. Likewise. Dog sitting's tough because you don't really know the dog, right? Like you, when you get yeah. to know a dog, the dog learns how to communicate with you. And you, you don't really know what the dog wants. Like when I adopted, she was already four and a half months old. So she had all these bad habits. So some of them you can retrain and some of them you had to work with. Well, having a great Dane who jumps up on the couch and lands on your chest, not acceptable dog behavior, cute when they're a puppy, but when they're full grown, broken ribs, right? And so in order to deal with that, one of the things that I taught her was to sit in front of the couch and put up a paw like on your lap, and then yes or no, you can get up. So it works well. When uh, my sister was here last week and, and the dog was walking over, my mom and my sister were sitting on the couch, and my sister thought she was just trying to shake hands. And my mom's like, oh, no, no, she's asking to come up and have a cuddle, and uh, and so on and so forth. So when your dog's sitting, I don't think you quite understand the dogs. I don't think it's fun. You stress out about it. So would you be okay? with sitting a dog that just randomly showed up though. Uh, I would pet it and then I'd look around and then I would be very concerned if there was no one around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Depend on the situation, I guess. Like how did this random, like, where am I? What's going on? And what do you mean? It just right. random. Is it at the front door? Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. Is yeah. it right there in the studio? Oh, studio dog would be great. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, scan the caller. Lots of them have uh, QR codes in the caller now. You can just put your camera on the phone on it, and it'll tell you where the dog is from. So that's super handy. You don't have to use the chips so much anymore. Um, what about if a dog just randomly showed up right in your bed? But, you know, you do get some puppy snuggles. That happened to a Tennessee couple after the curious canine jumped into bed. How did the dog get in my house? Uh, two, we have three dogs, uh, Jupiter, Hollis, and Zeppelin, and they bark at anything. A squirrel in the yard, a rabbit, a bird, they bark, and there was no noise. But as the pair checked out the dog, it seemed harmless. They think the back door must have been left open on accident. And it was through the power of social media that the pair was able to reunite Nala with their owner. This post on Facebook went viral, and sure enough, someone recognized Nala. We got a Facebook message saying, hey, that's my dog. I'll be there in a few minutes. What's your address? Johnson verified it was actually the woman's dog asking for photos as proof. And she sent me Christmas pictures and, you know, all sorts of different photos with her dog. She found out Nala traveled almost two miles and the adventure eventually ended when Nala wanted some company. As a matter of fact, I was still laying in the bed snuggling with Nala when her mom walked in the room. Oh, that's awkward. 
Awkward. Mom's Ooh, here. There's some puppy jealousy going on. That was from Fox 17. If it wasn't for the Facebook post, Julie and Jimmy said they would have had another dog as part of their family. Oh, they would have kept Nala. That's nice. Yeah. yeah that's nice. Well done. Uh, can we just acknowledge Julie and Jimmy as being like the perfect couple from New York? Who are you going to hang out oh, with? Oh, like the name? Yeah, I'm going to hang out with Julie and Jimmy. <laughs> Julie and Jimmy. We're going to get some uh, gabagool. We're going to have a nice yeah. day together. Hey, where's Julie beach? and Jimmy? I thought they said they were coming. Right? Yeah. Everybody needs a Julie ball. and Jimmy in their life. What was that, bud? Sorry? I said they're playing stickball. Yeah, playing stickball. Watching the <laughs> eggs in the Mets. I love it. All right. Are you okay with... Mowing the lawn. Wait. Wait. Are we talking about mowing the lawn or are we talking about mowing the lawn? We're talking about cutting the grass. Because mowing the lawn has a whole other different meaning. You mean there's a euphemism here? There is a euphemism. Mm. A euphemism. Well, I don't like doing chores, so no. What about you, Rye? Was I, it one of the chores when uh, you were a kid? I used to hate it. I used to hate it. My mom would, you know, would basically, you know, she would force me to do it because I just refused to. And then eventually, like, my parents would give in and do it. Although something changed, though. Um, when I discovered that lawn mowing and beer is a match made in heaven. And then mm -hmm. I actually felt rewarding because you would do, like, some kind of physical labor and then wash all that progress away with a nice cold beer. So uh, I actually do kind of miss doing that as I live in an apartment. Hmm. Well, you can come over here. I only have a small little lawn. It's like a poster stamp. And it's basically mm -hmm. Harlow's toilet. But you're more than welcome to come mow yeah. this lawn. If you have some beer. I recall having I a poster beer. stamp lawn when I was young at one place that I lived. And uh, depending on your neighbor, sometimes you would get like a neighbor that would just mow their little part of the poster stamp. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you would get like a, a nice neighbor or you would be a nice neighbor and mow the whole poster stamp. Oh, yeah. I have to tell you about um, uh, about my old neighbors here. They were the best. They would not only mow their poster stamp of my poster stamp out in front of the townhouse. Um, they would, if they were away and they had their friends taking care of their place, like they would travel. They were from Jamaica. So when they went away, they were gone for a couple of weeks at a time. And they, he would ask his, he would tell his friends, by the way, um, when you come over the lawn for me, please, and make sure the neighbors is done too. He would get his friends to do it. How's that for the perfect neighbor? Amazing what it is some people really do love mowing the lawn even when they're committing a crime okay this guy's mowing his lawn well port arthur police need help actually finding this man they say he stole the homeowner's lawnmower and then used it to cut that person's grass police say marcus hubbard grabbed the push mower and cut the person's front and the backyard so don't forget about the backyard. When officers got there, he ran away from the area while dragging the lawnmower with him. He eventually ditched it in an alley. Wow, that's kind. Uh, that's from KXAN News. Police believe he tried the mower first to make sure it worked. Then uh, the, the mowing enthusiast is still on the loose, and police are asking for assistance in finding him. 
That's fascinating. I, my old, uh, my buddy Corey stole a barbecue once when we were in college. Yeah. And, and I was like, where did you steal a barbecue? He's like, I stole it. I'm like, where did you steal a barbecue from? <laughs> where? His neighbors. The house next door. There was no fence even in between. He just literally took it off their deck and put it on his deck and played stupid when they asked. Did he ever give it back? No, they said that he's never, that no one's ever asked. He's like, they never came and asked. I'd give it back if they asked. It's a barbecue. Yeah. I know. That's a big investment. Come on. He's like suspect number one. Like, well, it's sitting right there. It's like, oh, it's. But he got away with it. It's so stupid, though, that it might actually work. Like, it's such, it's so ridiculous. You might think, no, that's impossible. If it was Uh, a special Cadillac barbecue that nobody has, then it would be obvious. But if it was generic, then, you know, you could have it. Well, I hope he at least mowed their postage stamp. No, he didn't even make them dinner, leave them some steaks like the other guy did, make sure it worked. He took the propane tank too. Like it's crazy. Wow. He took the propane. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody oh, ever asked. That was terrible. It's funny though. Are you okay with potty breaks, bathroom breaks when you gotta go? I'll be right back. That was that was me today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Very good. Uh, I have uh, notoriously for my friends uh, tiny bladder. So uh, if there is a bathroom not near me, I am stressed. So I am road trips are my number one enemy for that that reason sometimes. I so uh, I am a fan of the bathroom break. I would just like to give a shout out to radio operators of generations past. Yes. The great the great media touch it's called here. Uh just runs the commercials when I start them. In the past, years past, years ago, there were physical carts and you had to hit yeah. play on yeah. each individual Every 15 one. Or 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah, you couldn't go to the bathroom. And, like, it would be four yeah. hours of me sitting here hitting play on big plastic carts, just holding in the absurd amounts of coffee I drink before the shift. But uh, thanks to automatic commercials. I just go. Well, I remember when we made the switch in radio from playing CDs and records to uh the automation and you could actually go to the bathroom because if you had a day when you if you had tacos last night peter frampton was the only one that would save the day because that's all you had to wait for like you know you couldn't (laughs) Uh, most people will keep their dirty business in the bathroom private of course except for the fact that they're probably texting you while they're sitting there but not one man a canadian lawmaker apologized after he was caught logging on to a closed parliamentary session from a toilet stall Liberal Party member uh, Shafkat Ali uh, participated in a hybrid session of Parliament last Friday, joining with a Zoom-like feed visible only to other parliamentarians. But his virtual background was a bit of a stinker. I have to interrupt the Honourable Member, the Honourable Member for Fort McMurray, called takes on a point of order. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I just was wondering if you could look at who's participating online. I believe that someone might be participating from in a washroom. Uh, the member from Brampton Center. I can't see. I don't have access to the uh, hmm? the, uh, the the table. Doesn't see anything either. The honourable parliamentary secretary. Yes, is uh, Madam Speaker. I think that we have to be very careful in terms of the types of points of order. You know what people are are, are doing in their office uh, on on virtual. Uh, sometimes it can be very easy to um, 
to shy away from the, the camera to do something else, much like we might shift over a couple of seats. Uh, the most important thing, I believe, is that the member has the camera on and that they're in, in the room. And I, I wouldn't want to attempt to embarrass members. It doesn't matter what political party they might uh, belong to. I don't think it would be appropriate to, uh, you know, to use the virtual parliament as a mechanism to embarrass people. Okay, uh, I, I've had confirmation from the table that uh, a page has confirmed that there was a member uh, that appeared to be in the washroom. Uh, and uh, I would like to remind everyone uh, that, uh, on, especially online, we have to be very prudent on uh, how we use our devices and uh, to be um, aware of the surroundings when you are online. Well... I agree with both of them. I agree with the guy who says we don't need to embarrass people. That's not politics. That's dumb. But at the same time, if they're in the bathroom and something's going to go sideways, it's actually a work call. Like that's inappropriate. So I yeah. kind of agree with both, right? There's, there is an argument to be both, but like, yeah, maybe the, th the thing is though, if I was in a, if we were having the shift meeting right now, we're in a zoom call throughout the show, mm -hmm. right? If one of mm -hmm. you showed up and you looked like you were in a bathroom stall, I would make note of it, but I don't think I would make note of it while we were live on air talking. Send to a text message people. or something, right? Like, hey, by I the way, I can see. Yeah, maybe right. a bit more tasteful. Well, uh, Mr. Alley apologized, calling the incident from the toilet stall in the building's west block. <laughs> like He was in the building, an unfortunate event that arose from a lapse in judgment. Um, he said, I take this matter extremely seriously. Oh, wait, sorry, I've got to get the uh, tone right. He said, I take this matter extremely seriously, and I promise not to repeat this marriage again, he said. <laughs> sorry. Uh, this yeah. marks another bathroom goof by the Liberals. In 2021, Will Amos was spotted naked on camera while changing after a run. He apologized, but then later admitted to urinating in a mug while attending a community session. Hey, sometimes you got to go. When I was DJing in some places, there was no room. A beer bottle was all you had. Um, according to The Guardian, he said he would seek assistance and did not run in last year's federal election. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you going to the bathroom, Brad? How much do MPs make? Is it 180 grand or it's something like that? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. I would, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> All right. Nothing but the best running our country. That's what we got here. This is the Shift Podcast. Sometimes when you're flirting with the internet... You uh, stumble across things that are a little surprising to you. And I did. I stumbled across these little chalk creatures. <laughs> They're so funny. The guy with the big mustache to me is one of the most amazing of all of them. Um, when you when you look at these these different um, uh, art creatures that are created. David Zinn's an artist. Um, I, I, I guess I feel like calling you a chalk artist, David, is not fair. Like, oh. I don't feel like that. That's I don't feel like that's enough. Like. Because I, you know, I, I think of hopscotch and things like that. But really, that's what you're doing. How are you? Thanks for being here. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. I'm glad to have the conversation. Yeah. So tell us, how would you describe, because you, you, this is your lane, not mine. How do you know, um, how do you, what do you call what you do? Well, uh, when I want to be um, inconveniently uh, 
obtuse about my or, or obfuscating about what I do. Since I do work with Crayolas for a living, it's a little awkward to just say I draw with chalk because people do picture hopscotch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's not necessarily what I do. Um, and since my only college degree is in creative writing and I do love words, uh, it is technically also accurate to refer to what I do as um, femoral pareidolic anamorphosis. <laughs> and all of those are actual relevant words to what They're I words. do. I and can't they, spell them. And, and most of them are very hard to spell. And most of them people think are just made up words, but they're actual scientific things. Okay, which, so what is it though? Well, they do cover, well, the most, the most ob- the commonly used word is the ephemeral. It, and mm-hmm. ephemeral art is a subcategory of art, but it isn't just chalk. Uh, there's actually a lot of people who work in a medium that is not just going to self-destruct, but it's intended to self-destruct. Mm-hmm. It's actually, you know, temporary by design. Hmm. Um, cake and maker. you're okay with that? Oh, of course. Oh, it's wow. The, the, it's, it's a, it is the weirdest thing for a lot of people to understand because some people are very upset that these drawings wash away in the rain. Uh, but I've been reassured to talk to other people who do ephemeral art with other media, like people who make really elaborate cakes that look like shoes. Right. Or, or performing artists, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, since depending on how you feel about recorded audio, the only people who really experience a song are people in the room when that song is made from whatever instrument it's made. Right. And But certainly with people like myself and the cake makers and the sandcastle makers, um, the fact that it's going to disappear is actually what makes it so joyful to create hmm. because there's very little joy in the future of a piece of art. That's right. mostly where the anxiety comes in. That's where the stressful part comes in. Trying to preserve art is not really the fun part. Uh, it's often the necessary part, especially if it's your, your job to protect that canvas and store that canvas and ship that canvas and find a place to hang it on a wall where people can see it, and maybe offer to pay some money for it. And then they have to look after it and protect it and ship it. Um, and with all of that anticipatory stuff in the future, that can be an obstacle to even making the art in the first place, because yeah. part of your mind is wondering, well, is, is it worth it? Yeah. Is this going to be good enough to be worth using these expensive paints and this expensive canvas? Is someone going to want to buy it? Am I going to have to give it to somebody if no one wants to buy it? Can I give right. it to my mom? Do I have to put it in my attic? Do I have yeah. room for more paintings in my More attic? paintings, yeah. No. And a lot of yeah. the artists I know who work in non-ephemeral media have this problem where they actually have to consider whether they should make more art. Mm-hmm. But if you can't take the art home, don't worry about it. Can't sell it to anybody. Can't yeah, <laughs> so that, that's the amazing part, though, right? Okay, so there's so much to be had here. Like, I, I think I really get what you say about the only person, you know, with recorded media, the only people who really get it are the people that were there. And if you think of something simple that everyone can relate to, like the Mona Lisa, mm-hmm. I mean, sure, um, amazing, popular, storied, all of those pieces. But truly, from your perspective that you're sharing with us, the only pr- people who really know how amazing that is or isn't are the people who sat there and saw the Mona Lisa sitting there and then saw how either accurate it was or inaccurate it was mm-hmm. or the adaptations made to it or improvements, maybe a little eye lift or whatever. Like, <laughs> right. like, like, so those would be truly the only people. And that brings me to this sort of painting thing um, about canvas versus prints, right? Like the mm-hmm. person who buys the actual canvas comes the closest 
to knowing the painting and sure you can buy a, a, a print for 34.98 but mm-hmm. you can't you don't really get the same experience obviously when you can see literally see the bumps of the brush strokes in the paint right right so i mean that becomes that's an interesting perspective but you did say that part about building more paintings and selling them mm-hmm. i mean there's got to be something else you do to make money if you're all of your your career <laughs> rinses away in the rain well well that's the thing originally the whole well not the whole appeal a big part of the appeal of making art on the sidewalk was that it couldn't make any money i was already working as a commercial artist a freelance artist mostly working at a computer making useful art for local businesses and for the city government diagrams Mm -hmm. and logos and things um which did solve an important problem for me actually it was a good way to get past the fear of a blank canvas Mm. which i think a lot of people have Uh, a lot of people take the fact that they are intimidated by the idea of making art in a blank space as proof that they're not artists, not realizing that all artists also have this intimidation to get over before they can create art out of nothing. They just find ways to do it. And the way I got past never being able to put paint on a canvas without worrying indefinitely about what the first brushstroke should be um, was to work commercially. And then you never had to decide what art to make because someone told you what art to make. Right. Because they need a logo for this business and it sells this stuff. So it has to satisfy these limitations. And I like blue. So, so make yeah, it blue. And, and I like blue, so make it blue. It's not a perfect solution. And that's why the chalk came into it because it still is very much, you know, someone else gets to decide whether it's good or not, which can be very frustrating. Um, and it has to be done on a very rigorous, got to pay the rent schedule. Um, doing art on the sidewalk was originally an excuse to get away from the computer on a really nice day, but also for the joy of making art that didn't have to make anybody happy except myself. Mm-hmm. So it was wow. the non-commercial aspect that worked. Well, I'm going to describe and try to paint the picture on the radio of what your art looks like. I think that most people have seen the kind of art that gets, you know, the three-dimensional paintings that are three-dimensional chalk work that people Mm -hmm. will do that looks like a giant car fell in a hole and all those things that many artists will do. Yours is a little different, though. Yours is inspired quite situationally, which I I got a kick out of when you said a fear of a blank canvas, yet here you are for your creative outlet not using a blank canvas because right. you find a little tuft of grass and then paint a mouse around it. And now he's got a mustache paint. Exactly. I'm saying paint chalk, no, right? So, right. so yeah. you don't have a blank canvas and you, you're, but right. yet you still have a blank canvas, right? Um, I guess it brings in the question of what is a canvas, which to me is right. kind of fascinating. Well, um, I think you've hit upon it exactly that the, though I didn't know this was going to happen. The fact that the sidewalk is, really far from being blank because of yeah. all the weeds and the scratches and the specks Cracks. Uh, that you still have. Like when I was doing commercial work, there were limitations. You can't draw mm-hmm. just anything on a square of sidewalk. You have to work with what you've got in front of you, which is actually really inspirational because you stare at it for a while and you actually get the idea of what to draw based on what's in front of you. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating. So little chalk characters. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll try to describe because I, I w- I'm going to I'm going to steal this one from the Internet, by the way, the mustache guy and just post it on mm-hmm. our, a link to it on our Facebook. Um, and so everyone can see like I, the, the manhole cover cookie guy. Um, so the, imagine a tuft of grass 
you've got your sidewalk and between the cracks of the panels of the sidewalk grows a tuft of grass. We've all seen that before. Well, that tuft of grass becomes the inspiration for the mustache of a suited green man with a monocle (laughs) that um, with a little red tie that's standing there and smiling at you chalked on the sidewalk. So now the tuft of green grass becomes his mustache. The tuft of green grass becomes the tutu on a bunny. Um, so the other one is the manhole cover, which is you've turned a manhole cover into look like a cookie, which is fascinating. And then, uh, painted a, a little dude around there that's taking about to take a big bite out of the manhole cover. Um, the perspective work is amazing. I should acknowledge Thank that because that's so cool. Um, so that's really what you're creating. So tell me about these characters because you do have some reoccurring characters that you tend to gravitate to, like the little alien guy with the bulbous mm-hmm. eyeballs. Like he's a little cutie, you you know, like you could really make, I guess my question is, is that are you like, are these characters that are alive in your life or that they're part of a, maybe writing a book one day or are they, cause I mean, they're while you have the T-Rex that's made out of a rock, mm-hmm. um, you do have this little alien guy who who comes up again and again, right? You've kind of got the yeah, yeah. You know, Sluggo stuff like was that. one of the first characters I drew on the sidewalk very early on. He was almost the last character that I drew on the sidewalk because he started out as a drawing of a human child that went very very badly. Um, I'd only been doing this for a few weeks or a few months, yeah. and, I, and I was just starting to to really see the potential in looking at the stains and the cracks and then drawing what wants to be there. So I was really confident about how well that works. And the stains and the cracks in front of my house that day looked like they wanted to be a drawing of a human child dancing the jitterbug who had a sort of eggplant-shaped head. That's Mm -hmm. just the shape of the stain. It was just a weird sort of egg-shaped aubergine shape. And I thought, no, okay, it's the sidewalk. It doesn't matter. That's why I'm doing this, because I'm just going to draw what wants to be drawn. So I tried to draw this child with this eggplant-shaped head. And when I tried to put the eyes on that face, they looked really (laughs) wrong. I tried several times to like, okay, they're too close together. I'll put them farther apart. No, 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 that's that's worse. That's worse. They're too high. I'll put them lower on his head. Now he has way too much forehead. And it was the first time (laughs) that drawing with chalk on the sidewalk had not just been this very easy casual carefree thing to do and Mm -hmm. i got so resentful at this drawing for having spoiled my winning streak that i put those bulbous eyes on stalks above his head as a kind of revenge right i think i was even speaking to him at the time saying okay so you don't like your eyes there you don't like your eyes there. i'm gonna put your eyes up there what do you think of that then i'll show you And, and it was a very it was an important learning experience because it was only when i finally did that that the drawing started to come into itself as if it had been waiting for me to figure out that I hadn't guessed right the first time. And well, yeah. in the conversation with Maggie Hall, when we were talking about her uh, cheesies bags, she did say that she struggles with free will right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a much grander conversation of the psychology <laughs> of subconscious. But in all fairness, there is this sort of channeling thing that mm-hmm. most people in all careers can attest to. And it's not only, I think, I think people who aren't in the arts don't realize 
that they're doing it, but we all do it in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a minor hockey coach or, or maybe it's a guy who paints chalk on a sidewalk or a guy who's, mm-hmm. who plays the guitar and just kind of noodles away. Um, we all have this ability to tap into something where we don't really decide what it is. It just sort of comes out of us. And some people it's scribble doodles and, and, and whatever. Um, but you said that you said, you know, how you realize that these were drawings that were waiting to be made and it wasn't really up to you to decide what that looked like. Is that kind of how it happens where you have to sit down and you have to let go of the control part and say, my name's David Zinn. I'm a great artist. I'm going to show you. I'll, <laughs> I'll do this here. And you have to be humble, right? And sort of surrender yourself to, to that experience and just kind of, kind of let it come. And I, I heard a, um, Oh, what's his name? It's, um, Oh, the Hollywood medium. He had a fantastic line in his TV show, uh, Taylor. He had said, um, it's kind of like every time he connects in his world of clairvoyancy, he said, it's kind of like jumping out of, uh, an airplane with no parachute mm. and hoping that this channeling is going to open a parachute for me. <laughs> And I really, that was, that one stuck to me. He's a really smart man, regardless of the clairvoyancy part of people mm. fight, subscribe to that belief system. It, that doesn't matter, but he's a very, very smart man. And that line, I think we all do that. We all do that differently and we all do it in our own way. And it, it, that's what I took away when you said that these drawings that are waiting for me, mm-hmm. and then it's not really up to you. You just kind of add the color. I agree completely. I think especially with any creative medium that does require some technical, any, and luckily chalk is about as low on the ladder of technical skill as you're going to get. <laughs> I don't know, man. one of the things I like about it. You're making Either, it work. It's like a dull pencil, a sharp pencil. Like you're, I don't well, know, there's a lot of the skill. The simpler the tools, the, the more I comfortable guess. I am. You know, I don't have to wash any brushes when I'm done. I don't have to sharpen anything anyway. Yeah, so well, makes sense. But I, I think you're right. There is intuition involved not only with art, but certainly with any creative process. And I would say the creative process is something we're using far more on a daily basis than we really realize. Mm-hmm. That we are not robots. We don't take in information and then make a logical reason, you know, decision based on those facts. There's all kinds of other stuff that comes weighing in. Mm-hmm. And you can even see it in, in human development that you know, we talk about artists being this tiny subset of humanity, these weird people that do these weird things. And yet in the meantime, how do we tell our history through an actual reporting of objective facts? No, through stories. It's always, we always absorb everything around us through some degree of creative interpretation. It may be what makes us human is this degree of intuition and sort of massaging the reality to make it work for us. It's always, we always absorb everything around us through some degree of creative interpretation. It may be what makes us human is this degree of intuition and sort of massaging the reality to make it work for us. Well, massaging reality, boy, that sticks, doesn't it? Like we, (laughs) well, we do it every day anyway. We're doing it all the time. When someone says to us, Hey, by the way, you're ugly. And then you tell yourself, uh, well, they don't even know me, right? Like they, right. like we constantly reframe and massage what's going on in oh, our yeah. world anyway. So I think this is absolutely fascinating. So, so many little characters and I, I, I'm curious. I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for days, um, <laughs> partly because I can't, like, I, I can't even imagine doing this. So I wouldn't even know where to start the, um, you must walk mm-hmm. a little bit. 
Um, yep. I'm guessing you probably walk, and I'm, I'm going to let my ego step in just for fun and say probably <laughs> listening to the Shift podcast. Um, and, uh, but walking along, and then you see things, mm-hmm. and that must be inspiring, because I imagine there's like a hundred places you see for every one that you get to do. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah. And I was also curious uh, if they, you see them at the most inopportune times too. Like you're riding mm-hmm. on a train or riding in a car and then you see something amazing and you're like, Oh my God, where are we? Like, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, that must be um, enlightening and frustrating at the same time. Yeah. It is a problem, especially when I'm traveling because the opportunities aren't necessarily there because I'm more likely supposed to be in a certain place at a certain time. And because the legality of doing this in public changes widely from place to place. Uh, I got very lucky that in the town where I live, not only is it easier to walk around this town than drive around in it, it's fairly small. I can walk to the middle of downtown in 15 minutes. Um, so I'm always doing things on foot. And it is actually specified in the local regulations that you can make things with chalk on the public street as long as they're going to wash away in the rain. So I don't have to get a permit. I don't have to worry about being arrested. It's a, it's a strange loophole around you know, normal graffiti practice. Because the other graffiti artists in town are having to hide out in the dark and try to keep an eye out for the cops. And I can go out in broad daylight, sit down right in the middle of the sidewalk, and even put out a hat if I want um, and just create in that space. Get a free coffee. Yeah, it has happened. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. So, what was the first moment where you, because this is what I imagine, I imagine you're on a walk. Uh, something has happened to put you in a, a state of presence that you that you typically wouldn't be in, whether it's inspiration or crisis or whatever it is mm-hmm. that in that moment. And you're, you've gone for a walk and you stop. And the very first time you sort of looked at that crack or you looked at the manhole cover or that tuft of grass that's between the sidewalk pieces. And I feel like you would stop and you'd be like, your head would tilt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'd look at it and you'd go, yeah, that'd make a really good mustache or something. That's about the most accurate description of the process I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're in my head. <laughs> Get out of my head. Um, yeah, there's usually a, a little bit of stopping and pausing and muttering and humming uh, and sometimes chatting a little bit, either internally or externally with what's in front of you. Uh, and then if it's if the time allows, if I'm not in the middle of the street at that moment, you know, and no one's going to run me over with their car, then I can get started. I just have to make sure I never leave the house without my box of chalk. Yeah, I bet. Do you uh, do you have a, do you have a favorite character? Do you have one that's recurring that you have a good relationship with that you? Um, you know, it's a tricky thing because I do of the recurring characters I have. Which, by the way, I don't know why they recur because every drawing is improvised on the spot through that intuition we've been talking about. So I take it as a good sign, I guess, that these creatures seem to want to hang out with me more than the other ones do. Um, and they're very much my friends, so I wouldn't want to necessarily say one's my best friend, but they serve good purposes. Sluggo was very useful early on because he is clearly very excited about everything. And I think this is because he has no eyelids. So his only, <laughs> he's got these big bug eyes and, you know, that he can't really show, you know, boredom mm-hmm. because that requires eyelids. You know, you know that from very simple cartoons. So he was a very good, enthusiastic cheerleader character to have around. But he's also a little bit exhausting for the same reason, because he's very neta. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I started drawing the flying pigs, 
which I think I first started drawing at the suggestion of a small child in my neighborhood, um, their eyes are much smaller. They have those sort of little pinprick type eyes. And I actually tried to draw a flying pig once that was supposed to look scared for the purposes of the scenario I was trying to depict on the sidewalk. And I couldn't do it. Just something about the way this character is drawn, the only facial expression that looks appropriate is this sort of calm acceptance, which seems appropriate as on, on the face of a character who symbolizes how impossible things are possible. So this is the epitome of, you know, based on the that'll happen when pigs fly idiom, uh, which for some reason we only use to be mean to people. Yeah. So that means because it's a mean expression, a flying pig is by that nature an, an inherently positive and uplifting character to have around and sort of stands as this, it's going to be okay character and unflappable. Just apparently she's seen everything. So she's just like, yeah, okay. Which is a good mm -hmm. counterbalance to someone else who's always super excited mm -hmm. about everything that's happening. As a, as a word guy, I have to acknowledge your use of unflappable with a flying pig. <laughs> um, the, uh, I have to. So you some of these for, you know, when people have the, the uh, water main valve, you know, in your driveway mm -hmm. and stuff like that to turn on and off the water or the gas and those things, they're usually embedded in a driveway or a sidewalk mm -hmm. or something like that. You've got a couple. The water tank one, the Moby Dick one is amazing. There are two of mm -hmm. them that happen mm -hmm. to be side by side that creates a basically like a cylinder fish tank with a fish inside. Oh. Right, and, yeah. Yeah. and Sluggo is there, right? Sluggo's mm -hmm. there with a book and and um, and all those things. Those ones seem to be absolute gifts. There's the uh, the robot and the dog, right? They're similar. Oh yeah, um, yeah. right. Those mm -hmm. kinds of ones that are like that 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 you've done. Um, and, and so, and like even the um, the conduits that run into the sidewalk, right? Like mm -hmm. you you've been able to use all those things. And and uh, I, I guess my question from that is that. We often think that this is just the life that we have and that this is to me is such a good reminder that life is happening, whether we see it or not, like there is life happening, whether we see it or not. And mm -hmm. it also um, brings to mind, you know, life is just waiting to be created. The question is, mm -hmm. is what are you going to do with it? What somebody sees as an ugly crack sidewalk, um, somebody else sees as an opportunity because they bring it to life. And I think we all could learn a lot from that. Well, I agree. It's It's been a very uh, useful form of accidental therapy, uh, drawing with limitation of what's on the sidewalk, because you do get this internalized habit of seeing everything as a possible opportunity for something interesting. So it makes you very aware of every space you're in at all times, uh, which is why I think I tend to like most putting these drawings in sort of forgettable places, the places I'm in because I'm on my way to somewhere else. And most people walk through these these particular streets never to be there. It's just because they have to to get to this other place. So this it has this air of just being ignored and and not appreciated. Sometimes because it's full of cracks or people have dropped a lot of gum, and it's it's useful just for my own spirit to to take a second look and think, oh, okay, no, actually, there's a lot to be appreciated here. And after a while, it just gets under your skin and you find yourself enjoying every single speck and crack around you, both literally and metaphorically. That's such an invitation for all of us to, to look, right? To be oh, part yeah. of that journey when we're walking. I, I love the, uh, uh, the 
the invitation that comes with it. David's in as an artist, chalk artist, uh, just random drawings off of things that are already there. And it's absolutely fascinating. I will post uh, some of the links, well, his link to his website, plus a couple examples at shiftheads.ca. I guess the big question though, uh, David, you make chalk art. It washes mm-hmm. away in the rain. It's gone forever. So you walk up to this uh, crack, you spend maybe 10 minutes today, maybe it's an hour and a half, maybe it's three, four hours, a whole afternoon. And you're done. Mm-hmm. It's done, right? Like you're done with it now. And right. by the way, you're hungry. So it's time to go home and get <laughs> dinner, right? Like real life perspective. Yeah. How do you say goodbye? Can you help us walk through? Like, do you say, okay, fellas, thanks. See you later. Like, how, how do you say goodbye to art that you've just created and walk away um, when you know that it could be there for a week and it could be there mm-hmm. for an, an hour? Well, again, you have an uncanny uh understanding already in your description of how this works <laughs> that the the time it takes to draw a one creature um it's usually about a couple of hours but very only some of that is drawing uh some of it is you know talking to the ground beforehand or just thinking about or changing your mind and realizing it wants to be something else having conversations with strangers uh taking photographs because that's the thing which actually becomes the way to make this a job is selling the photographs rather than the originals, which feels like cheating, but it works. Um, and then having a point at the very end, just to essentially, as you say, say goodbye, or at least end this conversation. Uh, it doesn't generally feel like a, you know, enjoy washing away in the rain, <laughs> goodbye forever. Yeah. Um, because so many of these characters come back again, and any right. of them would come back again that actually feels more like spending time with a friend than if they were permanent. And it's something I've explained to a few people who are very determined that I should start putting fixative on these or use permanent paint so that they stay put and they'll be around longer and, and be appreciated by more people. But since these are my friends, if you actually imagine it in that perspective, if you saw a friend of yours on a street corner and you spent some time together, And then you went home and the next day your friend was on the exact same street corner in the exact same place day after day after day, you'd get a little worried about that friend. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, they would feel less real to you. You start wondering if they're not actually an existing living thing. Right. Because they should have other stuff to do. It'd be like having kids. They're just waiting for you to give them money or something. (laughs) (laughs) And with the attempts to preserve things, that doesn't actually make them stay exactly as they were the first day. They still fade. They actually turn into ghosts over time because still the even preservatives wear off. So it actually feels much better to be able to spend time making this thing, enjoying the experience of having this creative moment and then say a sort of see you later. And knowing you'll probably see Sluggo on another street corner later on. And that's what a friend would do. So that actually increases their reality in my own adult imagination. I love it. Well, David Zinn, um, Google David Zinn. If you're thinking, what in the world is Shane Hewitt talking about? A guy who has friends made out of chalk on the street. Um, That's okay. You just joined us. That's fine. You need to Google David Zinn or go to shiftheads.ca and get the links. I will post them there. I promise you this. You will go. No way. Or, (laughs) wow. 
Uh, it's fascinating. David, thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing your story here. Uh, I'd love to keep in touch and, and hear more about what you get up to. Absolutely. Um, we'll be happy to share the word if you uh, have a picture of something new you do and you just okay. won't let anybody know. I know this community of shift heads will, will, will love to hear it and love to see it. So we'll happily oh, share yeah. it for you. I was very happy to talk. You seem to have a real understanding of this stuff. I well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I do not have an understanding, but it <laughs> seems like I did okay. Um, but in the spirit of, like you said about friends, I will not say goodbye. Mm. I will say until next time. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. This is the Shift Podcast. We want to know what is the worst car you've ever owned. Maybe a friend of yours. It's easier to make fun of your friends. And uh, the biggest lemon, worst car, all those things. <laughs> I've been pretty lucky. I, I well, that's not true. I had a couple that were uh, absolutely dreadful, right? Um, one of the most dreadful I had was a Pontiac Sunfire. It was probably like a '93, maybe a '94. It was eggplant purple, and it was oh. just—it was a great little car, and. Um, I should clarify, uh, the master cylinder and the clutch and like all kinds of trouble all the time. Like it's a brand new car getting it towed to the dealership. And I hated that. And, um, so I bought another one. I bought like an, no, it might have been a 94. I bought a 96 or something like that. So looks like I did buy a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I bought another one after that, a nicer one. So I did buy another one. So it wasn't that bad. I also had a Jeep with about 12 or 14 kilometers on it that I was on the way home from the dealership. And when you, t- Excuse me, a little sneeze snuck up on me there. You didn't want to hear that. <laughs> um, as you would hit the ticker to turn left, uh, the right signal would go on. And you'd go hit the ticker to turn right, and the left signal would go on. Ooh, and so I didn't get it. Uh, I went to get it fixed. It took a long time to fix it. They did fix it finally. Uh, I love that little. It was a Jeep TJ back in the day. I love that little Jeep, although it really sucked making payments for like six weeks waiting for computer modules to be put in the car. And the other one was the worst one that was the biggest disappointment, I think, was a Mercedes B-Class. Um, that's that's the one that looks more like the Mazda four-door and um, has a CVT transmission in it for all you car folks, which is like the no-shift transmission. And it uh, the transmission died, which was common in those cars. It happened all the time, and you were playing a bit of a bingo when you had those older cars. And I remember I picked it up. I bought it in Vancouver. And I picked it up and I drove it back to Calgary. And right outside my house, uh, about a block away, you turn left off of a main boulevard into my neighborhood. I picked up that car in Richmond, drove it all the way back to Calgary. Perfect. Loved it. Got back, got to the red light, turned on my ticker, stopped for the red light. Transmission light came on. And the oh. transmission was toast. Made it home and uh, bought the car, had it for about three weeks. I think I sold it for 1500 bucks because that was like $8,000 to redo the transmission. Yeah, at that point, you're just... So we got a couple of weeks out of that one. Hmm. 877-399-9898. What is the worst car that you've experienced from any fashion, right? Uh, anyway, at all. Now, Ryan, you don't drive. No. So, I got a story do you have you, a though. friend or, or family that has a car story? I'm going to tell you about my mom's first car. This story lives in my brain rent-free. I cannot remember the exact uh, model. It was a Dodge, and someone's probably going to help me find the name of this car. I'm going to explain it. 
because it had uh-huh. one interesting feature that I always took out with me. It was this Dodge, which I believe was from the 70s, was massive, and the gear change were buttons. It was not a shifter. It was buttons. You pressed, park, drive, reverse, neutral, all of that. My mom and my da- my grandpa, they got the car. My mom uh, liked it at first it was definitely a lemon but it was the first car it was in the you know the 80s so whatever you make it work and my mom was driving it on the highway in red deer and noticed that eh, this isn't the great enough car and it's not going to last long so they got home and they decided to sell it and they sold it i think after just a couple of weeks of having it and they uh they picked it up or a, a buyer somebody bought it for cheap and my mom you know said good riddance to this terrible push button dodge and as the family that purchased that Dodge drive drove away, the engine of the car fell out on the highway in Red Deer. The engine <laughs> literally fell out of the car I on the road. It. Yeah, I everybody was okay. But as yeah. it, as is, it's your problem now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay, well that happened to me. I had a 1988 Chevy Sprint two door, three cylinder engine, manual. I mean, the tires looked like lawnmower wheels i drove that car hard i really did like that was the car as fast as it would go was about 140 and it went 140 a lot (laughs) let's just put it that way i was in college it was my college car and um i took it back to the dealership actually when i bought that pontiac sunfire i traded it in and maybe this is the karma of the pontiac sunfire that was terrible but i traded in the tiny little chevy sprint and bought the Sunfire, drove away, had all the trouble I told you about with the Sunfire. Well, I found out later that an old high school friend of mine's girlfriend bought that Sprint. Oh. And the engine blew up on the way home from the dealership after she bought yeah. it. <laughs> it's always on the way home from the dealership or the purchase. At least right? it gets it out of the way for you. Oh, it does. What is the worst car you've ever owned? 1976 Pontiac Acadian. Standard in the gear shift kept popping out of gear. Cheers, Ron and Pembroke. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks, Don. Sorry, not Ron. Thanks, Don. 877-399-9898. Worst car I ever had was a repoed 2001 F-150. Uh, Ron says the engine literally shook itself apart. Uh, I looked up your uh, alternative gift uh, sh- uh, gear shift levers. And apparently Dodge started making some of those push button trannies in um, like the 56 realm. Yeah. So there's a lot of cars uh, that had it. I know. That's so I don't the problem. know. I think it was the seventies. My mom wouldn't remember Dodge seventies push. I'll find mm-hmm. it. Uh, Clark says friends, Porsche 928 electrical failures, complete rewire. Cheers from Clark. Hey Clark. Um, yeah. The 928 was a Canadian built Porsche. I believe I love the Porsches though. Uh, I also had a friend who had uh, one of those little Civics, uh, the tiny little hatchback sporty ones. Uh, they had to rewire that whole thing because that was that thing went sideways too. Jo- Judy is in North Vancouver. Hey, Judy, what was the worst car uh, you've ever had? In 1955 Dodge. Mm-hmm. Why was it the worst? Well, I bought it for $50. <laughs> that could have been your okay. first clue, Judy. And okay. uh, I thought, oh, well, it seemed to be pretty good. But it was low on oil, so the guy I was buying it from, he came out with a can of oil and so you know topped up the oil. So I bought it from him. Next day, I go out to start up the car, and the darn thing, the red light's on, no oil. 
said, gee, that's weird. And I looked under the car, and all the oil's on the ground. Mm-hmm. So I went to the cheapest place I could find for bulk oil. I wasn't about to spend a fortune on good oil. You know? Well, at least not more than 50 bucks for the car. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I put, you know, I I bought I put it filled it up with oil, and I took a, a spare can of the bulk oil with me, <laughs> you know. And this was got to be a regular routine that every morning when I wanted oh, to use, wow. I had to go and put another can of oil in it. Oh, that's crazy! I love it. Yeah. I love the fact that it's a can of oil too. Back in the day, because I remember those cans of oil before they became plastic bottles. Yeah, I um, know. But it That's was so pain good. in the neck, you know, and I thought, well, I can't do much else because I couldn't afford much more at the time. That's <laughs> oh, so amazing. So what? Um, how long did you have it for? I think I had it for about six months. Wow, it's a long you know, time. And finally, it just got to be a bit much, you know, so I said, oh, geez. So I took it into the auto records. They gave me $25 for it. Oh, it's a pretty good deal. Worked out, hey? Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks so much, Judy. Appreciate the phone call, dear. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Judy's in North Vancouver. What is the worst car you've ever owned? Hi, Michelle from Poco. Port Coquitlam in BC. My friend Trisha had a horrific poo-brown colored Corolla that had a Celine Dion cassette stuck in the radio so we could only listen to that and not the radio. <laughs> oh, wow. That is torture. I hope it was a good album, at least. Oh, uh, there was more. Turn signals were wonky, and she had to quickly jiggly up down when turning. She had to quickly jiggle. Oh, she had to quickly jiggle up down when turning the car. Uh, it shook very violently when it was driving. Kelly. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> you want to take my car? I hate Celine Dion. Lose my mind. Oh, that's fun. Um, hey, man, we all have different reasons why cars are terrible. BK, you've had a few cars, and you worked around cars and with the dealerships and stuff. Are there any uh, nasty old cars from uh, the Kelly clan? Well, I've only ever physically owned two cars myself. Um, the Volkswagen, not the Volvo. Was, oh, the Volvo, yeah. Yeah. I worked for Volvo, but I did not. Oh, yeah, I drove was. a Volkswagen. Volkswagen was fine. Volkswagen, I drove the heck out of. I got it with 30 thousand kilometers on it and only had it for about five years and gave it away sold it with about three hundred thousand on it so yeah i really drove it uh and never had an issue with it the other car that i owned was a pontiac sunfire 2002 nice yeah i had several issues with that one um alternator brakes needed replaced all kinds of things um but the biggest issue and this is sort of vanity related was it somehow was able to get dented like you wouldn't believe like i would just take it over to the fairview mall park in the parking lot go into the mall and come out and there'd be scratches and dents all over the side and i'm like how does this car do that and you'd park like you'd you'd make a point to park nowhere near any car and like at the end of the parking lot and be like okay just gonna leave this here and it's going to be safe over here. And you somehow come out and there'd be like a big, huge scratch along the door. And it would just be like, how is this car attracting so much damage? Mm-hmm. I remember the Fairview Mall. That's the that's the one with the Zares there in St. Catharines. Yeah. 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 I worked there. That's, that's the one. Oh, did you work there too? I, there, I, yeah. I um, That's the one I remember when I first moved. Uh, that was my first time I moved to southern Ontario. I lived in Sudbury before. And I'd lived in Brockville before that, but I remember moving back to St. Catharines and I was in the parking lot and, um, I was just married at the time 
And my wife had uh, had stepped. We were walking through the parking lot, and we just moved from Alberta. And um, she was just going to walk across the parking lot. And I said, oh, you can't do that here. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, oh, they don't stop. It was like from Buddy the Elf when he gets to New York. And he's like, watch out for the yellow ones. They don't stop. Um, that's what it's like in the parking lot of that Zares of Fairview Mall in St. Catharines. She's like, what do you mean they don't stop? I said, it's the weirdest thing. If you're walking across, they're not going to stop. They'll run you down. But the exact same person will hold open the door for you and ask how your day is walking Mm -hmm. into the store. It's the weirdest courtesy ever. Yeah, they used to actually refer to that parking lot as the mild demolition derby. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) It was wild. It really was. Anyway, back to cars. What's the worst car you've ever owned? Roy, new texter. Hey, Roy, thanks for the text. 1989 Ford Ranger. Absolutely horrible. Cracked head, replaced rad, had five antifreeze leaks in different areas. Now, Roy has made me think of I had a 2018 Chevy Sprint. I bought that because it had Apple CarPlay. It was a cute little car. It was good on gas. I mean, that thing was terrible. It was, it was everything went wrong with that car. I replaced uh, coolant stuff three or four times. There was all kinds of fuel sensors and pumps that went. The whole, um, what's the OnStar system went? And I called OnStar mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, I need you to help me fix this. And the, and the guy said, well, have you restarted your car? I'm like, of course I restarted my car. And he's like, well, that's all I can do for you. You have to buy a new one. And I got it for no. cost because I complained so much. Yeah, but it was, a, it was a car that was three years old. It was out of warranty because of mileage. It was three years old, and I had to pay. They gave it to me for cost plus labor and um, 700 and some dollars for a new OnStar because the Bluetooth was connected to the OnStar. So I had this brand-new car that I couldn't even use Bluetooth on because the module died, and it was a module that... And I was paying for the Internet. Like, I was using the Internet hotspot in it, so I was actually a paying customer, and I had to pay on a three-year-old car $1,000 or so by the time it was done just so I could have Bluetooth back. Oh, and the heated seats went after two years in that car as well. They had to replace the heated seat modules. Um, what is the worst car uh, you've ever had? All used vehicles that I've had, Ford Escape, uh, front suffered cracked. Oh, boy, typo. Front suffrage cracked after eight days. Don't know what that means. Um, Ford Taurus Wagon, Trenny went after 15 days. Ford Focus, Edge and Blue after 10 weeks. Um Fought tooth and nail, uh, the dealer from day one uh, for the last one. No more Fords for me. Um, uh, Fords are pretty great today. Boy, oh, boy, those F-150s are sure fancy. Uh, Shane, stop buying GM products, LOL. Um, I, I like GM products. It just seems to be the cars I have bad luck with. Mercedes I've had bad luck with, too. The Mercedes is always something electrical, some sensor thing. I uh, remember once with the Sunfire, the uh, dash module burnt out. So the speedometer, nothing worked. So hmm. when I had to drive it to the dealership to get that fixed, it was kind of guesswork as if how fast I was going. It was like, ah. yeah, all right, I'll just gauge myself with the rest of traffic. traffic Hopefully yeah. everything's going okay here. A friend of mine had an old Camaro. It was like an old 70s Camaro that was like that. It was, But it was like bumblebee yellow. And so good luck trying to drive at like anywhere without getting in trouble because you were just guessing right and it was so bright and it was a that loud old sports car hey shift show of lemon vehicles it was a ford mustang that a boyfriend had 
got for me as a surprise. Late 80s or very early 90s, automatic, yellow with black molding on it. Not anything that I would have selected for myself. It broke down twice in a week uh, with electrical mechanical problems. I had it for less than a month and returned it to the dealership from London. Well, that's very scary because <laughs> we just bought, just bought a car from Mel. <laughs> so um, <laughs> these are terrible stories, scaring me a little bit. Um, I believe Ryan's mom's car was a Dodge Rambler, question mark? Was it Dodge Rambler, Ryan? Do you remember? You're talking about maybe that's it sounds kind of familiar okay yeah i was just assuming it was a minivan with a train cd in it ah uh, yeah yes. yeah definitely good well not at that point thankfully yeah no you're all good there by that point no i was not a, um even a thought at that point mm. even a molecule Oh, there you go. Uh, hi, guys. I had a two-door Chevelle 67 convertible. Never got to drive it because it had so many engine problems. It had rust uh, in the back. It was the early 80s. Had to get rid of it. I did get it for cheap, though, Genevieve. While Tesla has had a rough few months when it comes to this, owners may de- need to go through another recall, just so you know. We have a recaller to pass along to you this noon. Tesla is recalling about 130,000 vehicles because of an issue with the touch screen display. The automaker says an overheating issue could cause the display to malfunction. It affects 2021 and 2022 models. Tesla will provide a software update. Now that's from CBS, and this is a look at the massive Tesla recall from four months ago from NBC. Tonight, Tesla recalling tens of thousands of cars for safety issues. U.S. regulators posting that the electric car maker's rolling stop function in full self-driving mode may cause cars to run stop signs at up to 5.6 miles per hour. The recall in effect for more than 50,000 cars and SUVs made since 2016. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the rolling stop function will be disabled via a free software update this month. Tesla did not respond to NBC's request for comment, but Elon Musk took to Twitter to defend the feature, writing, there were no safety issues. The car simply slowed to about two miles per hour and continued forward if clear view with no cars or pedestrians. But it's not the only Tesla feature in the spotlight. At least one driver who's beta testing the full self-driving mode, not yet available to everyone, says that consumer testing is also a problem. With the full self-driving, testing this on public roads, I don't think that that should be happening um, the way that they're going about it. Obviously, I had to take over. Taylor Ogan posted this now viral video showing his drive through a neighborhood in Boston. During the one-minute clip, the Tesla veers into the wrong lane of traffic. Oh, no. Look at that. And almost hits a delivery van. What is it doing? Do you feel like Tesla needs to do something differently? Tesla historically and notoriously pushes the envelope. I don't know how much longer regulators will put up with it. It all comes less than a week after Elon Musk said in Tesla's quarterly earnings call that self-driving robo-taxis were part of a, quote, roadmap to potentially justify the company's sky-high valuation. The company reported nearly $54 billion of sales in 2021, its stock more than quadrupling its pre-pandemic high. The company's market cap now bigger than the world's next eight largest automakers combined. I own Tesla stock. I have forever. Um, and I will continue to own it. Overall, Tesla is a fantastic company that is enabling more miles driven autonomously than most any other company out there. It's just, I disagree with them on this approach. 
Now, it's great to own that and have all that kind of autonomy, but if not, if it uh, kills you. Tesla recalled 48,000 Model 3 performance vehicles in the U.S. in April for an issue that may not display the speedometer when it's in track mode. A software problem. In December, Tesla recalled 356,309 of its 2017 to 20 Model 3s to address rearview camera issues. The NHTA uh, TSA said the rearview camera cable harness may be damaged by the opening and closing of the trunk, <laughs> preventing rearview camera image from displaying. Tesla has issued 11 recalls this year, tied with Chrysler, uh, parent for the fourth in tied for. Chrysler parent Stellantis for fourth most in 2022. And if you think of the amount of cars that Chrysler makes and the amount of cars that Tesla makes, that percentage number for Chrysler is totally different than the percentage number it is for Tesla. But the stock is inflated so incredibly high. Uh, everybody wants to buy them. Got to buy them. Got to have the coolest thing. Um, well, get to know your, your repair guy. It would seem. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.